Uh, Lex Fridman is his name, and he's a mathematician at MIT, and I shared this with the prayer team this morning. Uh, he's got a great podcast, and his, his shtick, he's always wearing black, black coat, black tie. That's it. Short, trim, black hair. That's it. You never see him do anything like that. But he said this on Twitter over the weekend, and I was just like startled by its exuberance. But listen to what he said. The Big Bang started with a tiny point that formed 200 billion galaxies and led me to writing this tweet while standing in line at 7-Eleven. Why is everyone acting like this is normal? Life is a miracle. I thought that set us up for us to pray for many things before we hear the word preached. So would you join me as we pray? Uh, Father, I will um, readily confess, if only for the sake of helping those to know in this room that I am just like them, uh, that I can be too dulled by what appears to be the givenness of all things. What made the, the birds that are singing, uh, the leaves that are changing color, the wind that has become brisk, that all of that was just inevitable, but it is not. And I thank you that a mathematician from MIT who has no faith in you can remind me of why I should have faith in you. And I thank you also that uh, in any of the number of things that I might have been gripped by this week, things that were preoccupying to me, that if I am maybe only to stare in wonder at the uh, astonishing reality of all things, the, the very astonishing reality of existence, that, that somehow that might loosen its grip on me. And I suspect that there are many in this, in this company this day who are gripped by a number of things for good reason but have gathered here, if only that they might <clears throat> hear again and perhaps even believe a little as a consequence of coming here, that, that those things need not keep their, their tight grip upon them. That they would see that there is something greater and more glorious than even the darkness that surrounds them. And I would pray that for them. Uh, Father, any number of things may... Uh, accuse us, deprive us of things that we might hate ourselves for. Whatever the case may be, I ask that you would help us to think on things that are lovely and admirable and holy this day so that we, walk, we might walk in a newness of life that you promised to us through your Son. Father, we watch the news, and so we pray for what's happening in Taiwan or what is not. We pray that it would be minimal, but we pray that whatever has happened would be constrained and cleaned and cleared. Father, we pray for Haiti. We pray for our missionary brethren who are captive. We pray that you would see them released and soon. We pray for their captors. We don't care by what means you would get them to change their minds, whether it be you would strike the fear of God into them to be afraid of your wrath or to see the folly and the short-sightedness of their intentions or that they would see in those they hold captive a love and a resilience that they do not possess but which they might be strangely intrigued to know. Whatever means that you might choose whether by fear or being melted by a love that is not of this world, we ask that they might be freed 
and that the captors might be freed from their folly. Father, we are in need of more than we could imagine, and yet you have given us more than we could also measure. And we would pray that you would help us to take stock of that in some way with the help of your Spirit and at the same time become generous and cheerful in that. We thank you that you've given us yourself. We thank you that you've given us this company of brethren. We thank you that you've brought any number of people into this room today for whatever reason. And now we ask that you would help us to hear and to trust in what we cannot see, but which somehow by your Spirit we will not be able to deny. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. His name is Matt King. He's an attorney. His wife and two daughters, and they live in Hawaii. And George Clooney plays Matt King in the film that came out about 10 years ago called The Descendants. But what we learn early in the film is that Matt's wife has had a tragic accident out on the sea and she is in hospital and it doesn't look good. And then we learn late in the film that Matt's wife had been unfaithful. Matt's daughter, oldest daughter, knew and for a long time just never shared it. And now Matt is coming to learn what is true. And what is also true is that the woman of the man who had, had been unfaithful with Matt's wife has just come to learn of it also. And in this scene from The Descendants, that woman has come to the hospital room with Matt because she's trying to figure out about forgiveness. And what you will see in this scene is indicative of the entirety of the movie. It's about people trying to grapple with the idea of forgiveness. It's a hard moment, but I think it represents something very modern for the way you and I think about something so central as forgiveness. Do you, do you mind if I say something to her? Okay. Elizabeth, I'm Julie. I'm Brian's wife. I just want to tell you. I just want to tell you I forgive you. I forgive you for trying to take Brian away. I forgive you for trying to destroy my family. Because I just, I have to forgive you. I just have to forgive you, even though I should hate you. Okay, okay, that's enough. I just enough. have to forgive you. Really, honestly, I think that's enough. Okay, here we go. Thank you, Julie. You didn't love her, just so you know. You didn't really love her. 
it's it's in the it's in the subtlety of film that you can you can smush together really profound grief and then almost an awkward comedic feel there at the moment. Hey, all right, that's enough. Let's let's go. Yeah, it's like she doesn't know what to do with forgiveness, and neither does Matt. But in that moment, she's trying to figure out how does, how does forgiveness figure in? And what you heard her say was, I have to do this. It's, it's good for me if I do. Friends, in this life, in any human life, you're going to collide with forgiveness. Whether the, the need to receive it or the opportunity to extend it. And forgiveness is a big thing in our moment. Some people will use the idea of forgiveness as a shield against having to acknowledge the harm that they've done. Others will reject the possibility of forgiveness out of hand in order to justify their cause for vengeance. So if you think it ain't a resonant idea these days, you're wrong. And we have to think about this in advance because it's coming our way and it probably already has for many of you in this room. And I will just say by way of caveat here at the very front end, there's not, we can't say everything about forgiveness in this passage. We can say some things. We're going to go as far as Jesus goes, but I will say that perhaps the heaven is in the details. And so if we need to have a little informal Q&A outside to get our vitamin D after worship, let's do that. Jesus thinks we need to think about this in advance, and he's going to tell us, he's gonna, we're, we're invited into a moment that is too familiar to you. You've heard it a thousand times if you've been in church for any life. We need to think about that. We need to consider about forgiveness in three directions from this passage and one other later in Mark's gospel. Because to follow him is to think about forgiveness. And so we're going to consider forgiveness from three angles from two passages in the Gospel of Mark. One, the primacy of forgiveness, its importance, that is. The difficulty in forgiveness, it's hard. But also the responsibility to forgiveness. The primacy of it, the difficulty in it, the responsibility to it. Let's listen to what Jesus had to say about forgiveness in a very moment that no one saw it coming. In Mark chapter 2, I wonder if you would stand and listen to Mr. Angel read the text. Our central text for today is found in Mark 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to him, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, 
Rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand, praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. You can sit. Jesus, the text tells us, has kind of set up a home base in Capernaum and he is doing what he's been doing since he came on the scene according to Mark he's been preaching about the kingdom but somehow in this moment God's purposes and power and presence is in play and on display and at work in ways that it has not before and therefore Jesus is preaching that all should repent and to believe that the kingdom has come near that it has arrived with him and that to participate in that kingdom comes through responding to an invitation from him. And that invitation is to follow him. And what happens in this moment is that Jesus is doing all of that and it just so happens that it's taking place in this home and it's, it's SRO, it's standing room only. And, and all of a sudden, four friends show up. The kind of friends that are not going to take no for an answer the kind of friends who are going to hear somebody say, sorry, no, no room, and they'll say, there's going to be room. And so in architecture of that day, there was a staircase that would lead outside of the house and it would go up onto the top, and they say, let's go, boys, and they go up, they go in, and they cut a, they cut a hole. They, did you hear that? They cut a hole. In, thanks. They cut a hole in the roof. I'm telling you, we don't take no for an answer, and they lower their friend down. This friend that needed somebody more than just to carry him. They this, this person, this invalid, needed somebody to, to feed him, probably. Needed somebody to clean him, probably. Needed somebody to attend to his every need. And they bring him to Jesus, the text says. And if I might say by way of side note, even though it is not the, the real focal point of the whole passage, this is your picture of what faith is. I know we, we seminary-trained folk, we can sometimes make it sound like faith is this really complicated thing. You have to read a lot of textbooks. You have to get into this big state of mind. And then, faith. <laughs> friends, faith is just doing what these guys do. They thought Jesus could help, and so they brought their friend there. That's faith. If you think Jesus can help, you bring him. And, and it really doesn't even say that the invalid had faith. They were having faith for him. And in a lot of ways, to borrow a line from Martin Luther, a lot of times where you don't feel like you can have faith, you need to have other people that will have faith for you. 
And in that moment, we see it. And in that moment, Jesus certainly respects it. And what does Jesus do? Son, he says, your sins are forgiven. Doesn't say, but you can imagine the, the crowd there in the SR room kind of getting quiet, like squinting their eyes. You can imagine the four friends that have brought in their buddy looking at each other, looking at Jesus, looking at the friend, looking at Jesus again. And it's almost like, uh, waiter, we didn't order that. This person who cannot walk and who cannot do much of anything, it would appear, Jesus all of a sudden brings up the topic of sin. Why? First point, because there is a primacy to forgiveness in any life. That is, there is an importance to being healed from what damage sin can do that is even greater from the worst physical affliction you can imagine. There is a primacy to forgiveness. Now let's be very clear what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying. Jesus is not insinuating that this man's paralysis is due to his sin. He's not suggesting that there was something in the past of this invalid that has now rendered him a quadriplegic in the present. There is no sense in which Jesus is suggesting that, but he is saying this, no matter how tragic and unwanted and unfortunate it is that condition, there is still a moral condition that is of an even greater and more pressing need. If you're a doctor and somebody rushes you, rushes somebody into the ER, they do the thing called the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. Those three things matter first. The other stuff, you know what, we'll get to that. But until the airway, the breathing, and the circulation are all verified as operating and functional, the other stuff doesn't matter. You go there first. You have to attend to that first. That's how you treat. Jesus is just being a good physician of the soul. He definitely believes that there is a material world that you and I all inhabit. There are physical afflictions that go against everybody. And, and in this moment and in other moments, he attends to those because he believes there's a physical world. But at the same time, in saying, son, your sins are forgiven, he's also saying we live in a moral world. And in that moral world, you and I can fall prey to the very thing that's called sin that is a very much part of our nature and part of our world. And until you acknowledge that, you are treating the secondary thing as if it's primary. That physical world, that moral world, we have to make sure that we don't assume that those two worlds are separated by a really thick wall. They are not. And you already know that. Do you know why? Because would you not agree that there are more occasions than you and I might like to admit in which our physical or mental afflictions are due to a moral condition in our hearts. That there are things that follow us in our past and in our moments and they degrade us at the physical world, at the physiological level. 
And therefore, to say that, that forgiveness, you know, we'll get to that. We've got to attend to this. So, friends, on how many occasions that if you don't go to that moral world, the physical world will never be healed. Forgiveness has a primacy to it. And until you are unburdened of that moral weight, all the other physical weights, even if they're resolved, something is unresolved. Okay, um, kids, wake up. Ready? Let's talk for a second. Imagine if the worst thing you had ever done was the only thing that you were known for. Imagine if everybody knew what that worst thing was and you were remembered by it, you were reminded of it, people were revolted by it. Imagine if that was how you were thought of. It would be like living in a cage that you could not escape. Now, as young people, statistically speaking, the worst thing you may have ever done, I don't know, you wrote with crayons on walls, or you wrecked the car, or you stayed out much too late. Well, I don't know, but I bet you, know, I, 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 even if that's your story, I bet you there's somebody in your school for whom the story is different. And most days they walk around like Hester Prynne in the scarlet letter with a scarlet A woven into her shirt so that everybody would know you are unfaithful. See, this is not forgiveness. This is not just some sort of Sunday school idea. This lives and breathes. There's a primacy to forgiveness. And what's true of you young folks is all the more true of us that have lived a little bit longer. There is stuff we're haunted by. Okay, fine. Maybe I've made my point there. That forgiveness really matters. It's not secondary. It's not something that maybe we'll get around to at some point. And therefore, we like the idea of forgiveness. Who wouldn't? But therein lies the difficulty. Because as much as you might want it, on what basis would you have to trust it if even anybody said that you could have it? So let's talk about a second thing here. We've talked about its primacy. Now let's talk about the difficulty of forgiveness. Not only whether to trust that you can receive it, but how do you think about the people that you may have harmed in the process? And there's a little bit of difficulty, if only for different reasons, here in the passage. Because as soon as Jesus says to this dude, Son, your sins of forgiveness, alarm bells, go off in the seminary dudes that are sitting around. I'm sorry, what did he say? Who does he think he is? You're announcing to some poor soul that his sins are forgiven? And, and can, I see, can, I see your, can I see your ID? Jesus got no credentials. But it doesn't matter. Look, if you're Jewish and you hear Jesus say that, you would go, that's new. Moses, in Exodus 31, he asks the Lord to forgive Israel. The prophets come along and warn Israel of their need to have remorse for what they've done, that they will need forgiveness as a consequence of their actions. The priesthood would sacrifice all number of animals to transact the idea symbolically of the idea of forgiveness. But nobody, I mean nobody, says, ha, you're forgiven. Jesus just did. 
When David has committed every sin in the book and Nathan tells him, you're the man. At some point along the way, David in his grief and his remorse, Nathan comes to say, you're, you've been pardoned. The reason the scribes and the Pharisees are freaking out here is because they believe that Jesus has just arrogated to himself an authority he does not possess, and therefore they say, he's blaspheming. Do you not know that God alone forgives sins? And there's the wonderfully dramatic, ironic moment of the whole passage, because you put in the words of Jesus' detractors the whole point of the passage. Who has the authority to forgive sins? God does. And who, by the end of the passage, is claiming to have that authority? It's Jesus. Not a squirrel. It's Jesus. Who does he think he is? That's why they're asking that question. And and therefore, Jesus does them a little favor because he knows they're a little stirred up inside and he who stirs the pot must lick the spoon. And so he asks them a rhetorical question. Tell me, okay, boys, which is easier? To declare that a person is forgiven or to tell a man who is sick to rise up and walk? And you know what? Um, in their minds, it's kind of like, yellow card, Jesus, that's a foul. That's, that's a trick question. I know where you're going. We're stuck. And at first, you would think, you know what? It is easier to say that somebody is forgiven because what are you going to do? How, how do you verify it? Like, is, does something come in the mail? Congratulations. But then if you think about it a little bit longer, you go, mm, no, 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 no. Declaring that somebody is forgiven is harder because who has the authority to do that but God? That's harder. You know what? Jesus says, let me, let me solve it for you here. Son, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth. Rise up and go home. Off you go. Sure enough, he stands, he walks, and everybody says, now this is different. The difficulty attached to believing that you might be forgiven and who has the authority to announce that to you in a way that is both credible and in which you might rest, because that's what all of us want. The difficulty is addressed by Jesus here. And you, you, okay, that might feel a little bit like, yeah, what's the big deal? Why, why, why make this all this <clears throat> wonderfully, you know, vivid, evocative moment here? What's the big deal? I'll, I'm going to show you why it's a big deal. And from of all places, a scene from the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Okay, caveat emptor on that one, friends. Okay, viewer discretion is advised. But in this moment, here is somebody speaking, could not, be a more contemporary analysis of forgiveness than in this moment like that. Here we go. You think? What? You think we're ever really forgiven for the mistakes we've made? What do you want doing the forgiving, God? People? People never forgive. Not in my experience. They say they do, but they don't. I'm not even sure forgiveness really matters. Why wouldn't it matter? Well, what is it, forgiveness? It doesn't mean anything. I mean, you still did what you did, right? Nothing's changed. Forgiveness is a mindset. Synapses in your brain telling you to think differently about something that's already happened. It's amorphous. It's not really there. And if it's not really there, what is it? God, I hope that's not true. 
Every day, I feel like I'm getting kicked in the head a little. I know I deserve it, but I sure would like it to end someday. Just do what I do, stay away from people. If you're not around them, there are no mistakes to be made. That's not the answer. You know that. You need people. It's about my life. That's about it, though. Nah. You'll change your mind someday. Just wait. You'll see. Forgiveness is just a sense in the mind and the synapses work or they don't. It's just sort of something that you feel which may or not, may not be true. Welcome. What a wonderful world to be living in. Or your other option is just stay away from people and then you reduce the risk of ever having to ask for forgiveness. Love is never having to say you're sorry. That's our moment. And if I might kind of put that in context, there's a wonderful book that you should all get that just came out uh, a couple weeks ago by a professor of English in Oklahoma, his name is Alan Noble, and it's called You Are Not Your Own. And there's one question we all have to sort through in this life, whether you believe in God or not. Who do you belong to, if anyone? Do you belong to yourself? Are you the master of your fate, the captain of your soul? Or do you belong to somebody else? If you believe that you belong to God, then that changes a whole set of other questions. But if you think that you just belong to yourself, then you're in the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, because as Alan Noble talks about in that book, there's a whole sorts, there's a whole other, there's a whole slew of things that you have to do if you are to believe that you belong only to yourself, including what you do when you've blown it. Because if you think that you belong to yourself, then you will live on this precarious cliff, wondering, can I ever be forgiven? And if I can just tell myself, look, you either have to tell yourself that stuff doesn't matter and move on, or you have to somehow believe the, the modern counselor who just tells you, honey, you just need to forgive yourself. Why didn't I think of that? I'll get right on it. My voice isn't strong enough to forgive myself, and neither is yours. And if you belong only to yourself, your voice you will have to tap with an authority it does not have. But what happens even if you try to forgive yourself, if the people that you have harmed won't forgive you, even if you've tried to seek their forgiveness? What will you do if you want forgiveness from somebody who's dead? What then? Your inner voice is not enough. Where then do you find the basis of any rest or trust in the possibility of forgiveness? You ground it in the one who didn't just say, son, your sins are forgiven, but who validated his claim by healing them there in real time and then going to a cross and dying for you that forgiveness might be true. There are some of you, if not many of you in this room, that live in shame right now. And the question is, can you ever get past that? I'm here to remind you that there is one who died 
in order for forgiveness to be possible. And that means even if you've blown it, there is forgiveness. But I should say, as soon as I say that, it also means this. That as surely as the difficulty that Jesus faced at his cross begins to answer the difficulty of forgiveness in yourself, in that there is rest, but it is believing that what he did at his cross that also humbles you, and strengthens you to seek forgiveness from those you have broken. Those two things go hand in hand. It's not about using it as a shield to protect yourself from acknowledging the harm you've done, but it is a place of refuge to know that there is a forgiveness even on the other side of all the harm that you've done. There's a primacy to forgiveness, there's a difficulty in forgiveness. But there's one last thing we've got to talk about. We've got to talk about the responsibility to forgiveness and what that is. Again, friends, let me just say it again. Heaven's in the details. We've probably got to talk about this offline, so let's do that if you need to out in the sun. In the last three verses of Mark chapter 11, which we, we jumped to because it's the, in, in Mark's gospel, Jesus talks about forgiveness only two times, and you just heard them both. Congratulations. Covered that. But in the last three verses of the passage, it goes really fast. I just want to focus on the last verse, but let me read it. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, it will be yours. Here we go. Lean in. Ready? Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. A lot goes fast there. Faith, doubt, prayer, request, whatever it was. But then in verse 25, it sounds as if Jesus is saying that the efficacy of your prayers is bound up with the forgiveness in your heart. That somehow if you remain embittered without attending to the possibility of forgiveness, it's almost like your prayers go to spam. Now maybe that's putting it a little harshly. And I suppose if we had time to go back and have another sermon about that, we could. But he is saying, anyone with anything against you, forgive. Our responsibility and the opportunity to forgive is to move in that direction. The alternative is, is to continually despise them and to hate them and be embittered to them. And you know what that is? You know what doing that is? It's absolutely natural. I get it. If you're feeling it today, I understand. I do not look at you with derision if that is where your naturally is going in your heart. If you've been deeply harmed, I understand that. What is unnatural is to entertain the possibility that there might be something even more beautiful and blessed than harboring hate. No matter how instinctual it feels, no matter the harm that they've done to you, how egregious it was. I know very well that to heal and to move on, look, the lady in the descendants, I, I, you get it, right? If you do remain embittered, you are held captive by your own unwillingness to forgive. So it's totally understandable why she goes in that way, but do you see how Jesus 
is so very unfamiliar to our modern constructs for talking and thinking about forgiveness. And you know who picked up on that? Uh, He's a philosopher named Joseph Keegan. This is not a movie, this is real life. Joseph Keegan had a father who was cruel, who was addicted to many things, and who was a serial monogamist. And then Joseph Keegan's father has congestive heart failure and is dying. And on his deathbed, Joseph calls his siblings and says, I think, I think dad's going to die. We've we got we to reckon with this. And all his siblings can do is either ignore their father and write him off or, or scream at him over the phone for all the things in which he had done to them. And, and Joseph Keegan, who was a philosopher, who, but who did not believe in God, he, he was at least a thinker who said, surely there's a better way to handle even something like this than just nurturing your own hatred. And so he does a survey of the ancients, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and considers what they say about forgiveness. And all of them, to a man, to a woman says, if you would like to have a noble soul, you must forgive. That it is beneath you to hold on to hatred. And then Joseph Keegan considered the East, and he went to Buddhism, and, and he hears the Buddha saying, in order to maintain a serenity and equilibrium of soul, you must forgive. And Keegan, doing this analysis that only a philosopher would be interested to do or take the time to do so, he realizes that both ancient antiquity and even in the East, there's one thing that holds those two ideas together when it comes to forgiveness. It all has to do with one thing, you. It's all about your good. Joseph Keegan's not a believer, but he had a friend who was. And the friend said, Nah, you ever picked up the Gospels? So Joseph does, and he begins to read, and something kind of catches fire in him. He realizes that something is very different in Jesus, and he put it like this. Hanging on the cross, in the process of being tortured and executed, Christ looks down onto the people responsible for his death and prays to God to forgive them. He's not ridding himself of anger to achieve spiritual tranquility. He's not trying to restore the karmic balance of the universe. He's not trying to showcase his own virtue. His concern in the midst of his own execution is for the good of those who have wronged him. And it is entirely for their sake that he utters his prayer of forgiveness. For Joseph Keegan, he said, That's different. He was seeing a picture of forgiveness he had found nowhere else. And in seeing that picture of forgiveness, he saw something that he could only regard as beautiful. And in seeing its beauty, he saw a reason to do so for his father likewise. And as a consequence of his father dying and of Joseph reckoning with his dying and in seeking to forgive him, he comes to faith in Jesus. He was blown away by the way in which Jesus was not interested in himself, but in the good of those who had wronged him. And Joseph Keegan did not have to believe that what he had done was worse than what his father had done to him. He just had to believe that Jesus did far better for him and for all and acted for good. And that was enough for Joseph to see it as beautiful. 
And that was enough for, G- for Joseph Keegan to believe that this forgiveness could be possible. Because he saw what had been done for him. And in the beauty of seeing that, he felt compelled to do so for his father, even posthumously. So what does that look like? What's the take home? Where do we go with this? Let me end you with let me end with one more voice. A fellow Texan. Her name is Elizabeth Brunig. She's an author, she's a writer, she's a mother of two children, wife. She writes a lot. There's all sorts of sermon resources in the resource page this week you should read. It's just lovely stuff. But she did an interview. She's a Christian. And at the end of the interview, the person asked the interviewer asked her, "What's been your experience with forgiveness?" even at her young age in her late 20s. She put it like this. Forgiveness is a decision that's kind of like the 12 Steps program. You remake it every day, and you do it every day, because sometimes it'll come to you, the thing that happened. You're standing at the sink or looking out the window at the bird feeder, and the fury comes back to you, and you want to explode all over again. At that point, you have to remake the decision to forgive. A lot of forgiveness, at least as it's manifested in my life, is me reaching out and being there and being friendly and warm and open for the restoration of a relationship with the person who hurt me and saying, I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. Jesus on the cross is saying to you, I'm still here. I am not going anywhere. Do you believe that? If you've never believed that, I invite you to believe that today and to tell somebody that you maybe believe it and are strangely warmed by it. But somehow, in the course of believing that Jesus says to each one of us, I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. That that may, in fact, provide us a beauty and a strength to say it to another and to remake it as often as we need. There's plenty to say about forgiveness. Hear what the Lord says about forgiveness today. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Father, uh, indeed heaven is in the details and I know that there are many in this room who want to believe it's so clean and easy and it's not. That it is as countercultural and unnatural as anything that we might imagine. But I pray that you would help us to grapple with this. To believe that what you did on the cross was not a, a show of virtue, but somehow it was necessary. And not only was it necessary, you were glad to do it. And I don't know how that splits out in anybody's moment right now, but I would pray that you would confirm to them how it does. And I pray in the wilds ahead, in the way forward, when we've been harmed, or when we've harmed, that you might help us to hold on to the image of one who died for his enemies and forgave those who were entirely oblivious to what they were doing in the moment. Thank you for him, for this word, 
for the healing that is deeper. Help us to rest in that, sir, in Jesus' name. Amen. Where ruptures abound, grace abounds all the more. Which gives us the possibility not only to heal that brokenness, but also to heal what gave rise to the brokenness to begin with. In that we take heart and hopefully take heed. And therefore, brethren, that a him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Do take a moment to some of your first words be with somebody that you don't know. Peace be with you.